The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Father, we have a great selection of viewer questions tonight, and I'd like to begin with the first one here from a viewer who asks about uh, Dorothy Day and Christian socialism. So this viewer writes in and says, I was wondering what you think of Dorothy Day and if you could talk about her. I've read a little about her, and it seems that she is a convert to the Catholic Church, but she was also a socialist. It could be that she was a socialist before she converted. I've also heard that there are some charities named after her. Are they Catholic charities or socialist charities? I'm interested in in hearing what you know about her. Pope Pius XI, back in the 1930s, said that no one can be, at the same time, a sincere Catholic and a true socialist. Is there such a thing as Christian socialism? No. Okay. <clears throat> it's impossible. Okay. The two are intrinsically uh, opposed to each other, mutually opposed. Mm-hmm. Now, socialism is, uh, at its root, uh, a denial of the right to private property. Right. And um, you have private property and public property, right? The public property basically being in the control of the government, <coughs> whatever form the government takes. And uh, the more property that the government itself controls, the more of a, necessarily, the more of a tyranny you have. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because the, uh, the right to private property is a God-given right. And uh, when the, uh, the resources for li- necessary for life are actually being controlled by the government, um, you, you necessarily restrict the God-given liberties of the people. You know. mm-hmm. That's why Pope Pius XI made it very clear um, that one cannot be a sincere Catholic and a true socialist or a true Catholic and a sincere socialist at the same time. Um, <clears throat> now, they're, they're constantly trying to repackage socialism. You know. um, they might call it liberalism one year and progressivism <laughs> the next year and um, you know, a variety of other, you know, I guess, just to try to make it palatable for the, to those who find the word socialism unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But the thing is what it is, regardless of what you call it, right? So, um, whether Dorothy Day was a socialist, I don't know, I don't know that much about her to say that she was a socialist, frankly. Um, back in the day when she converted, there were those who actually were leaving the communist parties mm-hmm. you know, around the world and and uh, joining up with the Catholic Church, and they were being disillusioned with uh, the Communist Party because they realized they had to face the fact, ultimately, that the Communists were involved in more in their own power and control than they were in helping the poor, mm-hmm. and the downtrodden, and the disenfranchised, and the alienated, and all the rest. Um, Bella Dodd, in our own country, was one of those. <clears throat> We came to realize the hard way that the communism was a lie and the communist parties 
uh, were not at all interested really in helping the, the poor and the downtrodden. They were taking advantage of people who were interested in helping them. <clears throat> and she uh, returned to her Catholic faith through the, the agency of Bishop Sheen, actually. And, uh, th but that was Bella Dodd. Uh, Dorothy Day is a different story. And um, I, I just don't know enough necessarily about her to say whether she really was a socialist. Uh, my understanding is that she was, but that uh, she had to drop the socialism in order to become a Catholic because mm -hmm. she saw that uh, the way to remedy the evils of society uh, was not in the hands of a party or a government, right? Not in the hands of a political party or a government, but really was the work of the church. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that would mean that the church would have to stand up before the world and pronounce on justice, matters of justice and charity. Uh, of course, in those days, the church was speaking very boldly about these things. Uh, the head of the Communist Party in, in Britain, I believe his name was Johnson, uh, converted to the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. right. and, um, and he remained in the Catholic faith until Vatican II, and after Vatican II, he, lo he, left, he lost the faith, lost the church. Um, and uh, because I think he, he began to see that Vatican II had deviated mm -hmm. uh, from what he really saw as a spiritual battle, not merely a battle of, uh, of you know, warriors, war, warlords on earth, but uh, really a spiritual battle. So uh, can there be such a thing as Christian socialism? No. One might, one might come back and argue, well, look in the convents and look in the monasteries. Mm -hmm. There you find religious uh, clergy and non-clergy. You have the priests or the clergy, and you have the brothers and the sisters who are not clergy, and they are nonetheless vowed to poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they are in uh, religious congregations and have taken simple vows of poverty, you admit, you admit that they can own property, but the property must be at the service of the entire community. Mm -hmm. If they take solemn vows by entering a religious order, you say they don't even have a right. They've given up all right to private property. They can't even own thing, anything anymore. And so either way, in practice, they're living in community and sharing all the goods uh, holding them in common and, and uh, see that's that's Christian socialism and the answer to that question is it's absolutely not true <laughs> because <clears throat> again before you can make a vow of poverty one of the religious vows of poverty whereas you you a simple vow you retain you retain the right to ownership but you give up the use of the thing <clears throat> to the common good or a solemn vow where you you give up even the right to own property <clears throat> uh, both of those begin uh, with the right to private property. There has to be a right to private property before you can give it up. Mm -hmm. And it has to be something natural to you, you know, natural for you, and it is. It's a natural right given by God uh, for uh, people to labor, to earn, to own, uh, to control property, and that uh, property uh, can is to be controlled in matters of justice and charity. Mm -hmm. So no one has an absolute right to private, to anything he owns. I mean, even if we admit, even if we insist, there is the right to own private property, such that a person 
has a right to it in justice, and others have, a, have an obligation in justice to acknowledge that right and to protect that right, mm -hmm. to respect that right. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, no one has an absolute right in terms of the necessity of another person. Right. <clears throat> and uh, when others have a need of uh, food, uh, clothing, shelter, and so on uh, to survive, um, then they they have a they have a right to that even even uh, uh, which supersedes a right of ownership of someone who let's say might in fact have the legal title to things, but uh, that doesn't take away the obligation of those who own to give to those in need. Probably the greatest uh, champion of that recently would be Saint John Bosco. Okay. Saint John Bosco would uh, <clears throat> eat with the very poor people, but he would also, I mean, I mean he took in the, the, the uh, ruffian orphans who were basically feral, basically feral children living out of the, <clears throat> the, the garbage cans, if there were, of, uh, of Turin. And uh, he ate with them, he fed them, and, uh, and ate with them. But he would also be invited to the royal houses uh, uh, the palaces of uh, the ruler, the, the royal mm -hmm. royalty at the time. He'd sit down with them at their lavish surroundings and sumptuous banquets, and, uh, and he would tell them, you know, <clears throat> you have an obligation before God to uh, share what you have, the excess that you have beyond what you need to, with those who, who need these things to survive. And this is a very strict obligation, so God will judge you for this and could condemn you for it. He made no bones about it. <clears throat> and this is the message of the church. This is what all, all of the saints have, have sent that message. But St. John Bosco, <clears throat> because of his proximity to our own times, we know so much about him, and because, uh, you know, his range of uh, exposure <laughs> was from the royal houses all the way down to the, the poorest, literally, the poorest of the people. Um, he, he really made that point very clearly, and it's a point that, uh, um, let's face it, uh, the saints make because the church makes, mm -hmm. and because Christ made the point. Mm -hmm. So if Dorothy Day's uh, work was really inspired by charity, uh, a love for God, a love for her fellow man, then certainly that could have sanctified her. If she was motivated by some socialist um, ideology, that would not have sanctified her in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, the modern church is kind of promoting her. Mm -hmm. They've opened her, her cause for, mm -hmm. for canonization. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to read, though. <clears throat> See, the, the modern church is very selective. <laughs> yeah. about uh, whom they choose and what uh, image they portray of the people they choose. Like, for example, Blessed Oliver Plunkett, right, mm -hmm. Scottish bishop. Um, uh, they, they wanted to make him the patron saint of ecumenism, right? Yeah. right? I mentioned that before. Yeah. And on the scaffold being put to death by the Protestants of Scotland, he was asked, well, uh, let us pray together. And he said, I will not pray with you because we do not pray the same prayer and the same faith. And they asked him what cemetery he wanted to be buried in. And he said, bury him in the field. I will not be buried with heretics. So he, he made a very bad ecumenist. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. Especially uh, considering yeah. they felt it necessary to kill him, mm-hmm. to, to murder him. <laughs> Uh, there are others. They they probably Saint Anseton, the blessed blessed Anseton too. They want to uh, they they want to take these these who may well be true saints. Padre Pio is another, mm-hmm. you know. But we would say yes, we believe that they're they're saints in heaven, but we don't believe they're saints in heaven because the Novus Ordo says they're saints in heaven, right. but because of the lives they lived, you know. <clears throat> but they were all motivated by a love for God, and they had writings to prove that, yep. you know, and they had actions to prove it. They were motivated by some kind of worldly ideology, as Francis is, evidently. Um, Dorothy Day, I'm not sure. If they do proceed with a cause for her, it would be interesting to read what, to actually read what she wrote Mm -hmm. and see if she was motivated by a political ideology um, and was merely an activist for some ideological reasons, or if there was a genuine love for God and man there. Uh, a love for man motivated by a love for mm-hmm. God, and that uh, therefore we see in her a genuine j- justice and charity as the church herself defines that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, Father. Um, backing up just a little bit, though, to something you said about the um, the, the the religious having mm-hmm. the initial initially having the right to to private property. As far as uh, socialism is concerned, I say another. <laughs> Uh, similar to that, another uh, simple way to discredit this socialism that they talked about is just by the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. Mm-hmm. And that necessarily implies that there is a right to private property, and socialism necessarily involves mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the the stealing of property. So mm-hmm. it would break the seventh, the seventh commandment. <clears throat> uh, however, a socialist could say, well, I, I believe in that commandment. Mm-hmm. And stealing is taking something and claiming it's your own. Because you're stealing it from the public welfare, yeah. you know. Uh, so the Communist Party um, of China, for example, could have, or I'm sorry, the People's Republic of China, <laughs> could have uh, taught the second, Seventh Sorry. Commandment, but they say, you know, well, there's, you know, you, you can't claim private property. If you claim private property, you are stealing. Mm-hmm. So you're in violation of that commandment because everything belongs to everyone. Sounds very Marxist. Uh, yes, it is, actually. Mm. Okay. Um, it's a matter of terminology and how they define the words. Yeah. That's why you've got to be careful of the Sordo, because they will use the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. Sure, The sure. Catholics mean. Sure. Father, I'd like to move on to another question, though, that's um, this somewhat, somewhat tied to this. There's a viewer who asked if there's any conflict between the church and membership in the John Birch Society. Uh, not that I know of. I don't think the John Birch Society does now. I but I and I and I did, did not then. I mean, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, um, <clears throat> require oaths of loyalty, um, secret pledges, uh, whatever they wanted their members to do was all out in the open, very public, and based upon moral ethics, ethics, and uh, you know, fighting for moral causes. At least it was that way in the past. Now, I, I had heard that at one point, some years ago, um, the um, Mormons ha- had uh, achieved a lot of power within the John Birch Society, and were using that power to, well, according to some Catholic members, uh, kind of, not well, maybe suppress is a little strong, but uh, rule against uh, any Catholic practices, for example, at their camps. Okay, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um, 
But I don't know what the situation is right now. Okay. You know, as far as um, as far as the Mormons uh, exerting a certain Mormon influence within the John Birch Society. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really even know who, who the current leadership are in their, in their council. <coughs> but um, I know back when, uh, when I was a seminarian and uh, newly ordained priest, Father Francis Fenton was uh, part of the, the council of the John Birch Society, and uh, he believed that uh, it was very much dedicated to freedom and justice and charity, mm -hmm. as the church herself was dedicated to, he didn't see any conflict there. Um, <clears throat> the founder of the John Birch Society, Robert Welch, <clears throat> um, who, by the way, Robert Welch was the um, uh, candy manufacturer, right? He um, was a very successful candy manufacturer, and that was basically how he uh, made the money necessary to undertake this work. He saw our country was being undermined by communism, leftist, socialist, so on. And um, he determined to try to keep the country uh, faithful to its founding values, principles. And um, he uh, was not a Catholic himself, uh, certainly. He might have been a Methodist, for all I know. But uh, I know that he would travel the country giving speeches and he would say such things uh, uh, as this, the, the greatest moral leaders of the previous hundred years, <clears throat> this is going back to the 1960s, mm -hmm. uh, 1970s, the, the greatest moral leaders of modern times, in any case, he would say, were Pope Pius IX, Pope Pius X, Pope Pius XI, Pope Pius XII. And uh, this would really irk the non-Catholics in the crowd. And, um, but the Catholics found it very interesting that a non-Catholic would acknowledge that, be honest enough to acknowledge that. And um, eventually he was received into the Catholic faith by a traditional Catholic priest, not by a novice ever priest, by a, true, by a traditional Catholic priest. And uh, he was anointed for death, I believe, by our own uh, Bishop Kelly. Um, so he died with the, with the Catholic faith. So, uh, but I think that is because he was a man who, who really loved the truth, mm -hmm. and God led him to it. Um, so I, I myself don't see any conflict. If anyone out there does, I'd appreciate if they bring it to my attention. I mean, there are those, those who say, well, insofar as John Birch Society stands for uh, what they would call Americanism, <clears throat> and Americanism is based, some would say, on, on, uh, <clears throat> on uh, masonry and so on in its history, they might say, therefore, it would be impossible for a Catholic in good faith to belong to the John Birch Society or to work with it. <clears throat> but uh, there was an enormous amount of struggle going on at the foundation of our country. And a lot of uh, what the Masons try to represent as their influence and their input, I think, is propaganda. I mean, I just don't think it's trustworthy mm -hmm. myself. So when they say, uh, when they show George Washington with the apron and the trowel laying the cornerstone for the nation's capital, 
<clears throat> I have to ask myself, well, is this real or is this just some Masonic uh, uh, imagination and, and fantasy? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The fact that somebody drew a picture of it doesn't make it real. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> the fact that it was reported in, in a Masonic press doesn't make it real. You know? <clears throat> there are biographers who say there only is re- there's only a record of, Archbishop, of, of, of George Washington um, setting foot in the Masonic Lodge twice in his life. Mm-hmm. One is when he was inducted, and uh, then a long space of time in which he did not return. And, you know, even the second one, I I don't know that that is certain at all, that he ever went back to it. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, reports, for what they're worth, of George Washington dying as a Catholic also. And I think there's a certain credibility to that. Mm -hmm. We certainly pray for that. Mm -hmm. Um, George Washington uh, did criticize the Catholic Church for not sharing the Holy Eucharist with other believers. But I think that speaks of the, kind of the mentality of George Washington, that he was not a bigot. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, I, wouldn't be, I will not be a bigot against Catholics, and they shouldn't be a bigot against others. You know? mm-hmm. But that's because of a certain naturalistic view he would have had of such things. But <clears throat> I think if a Catholic priest were to sit, have sit down with him and, and answer that question to him, and you know, just explain to him, I'd like to think George Washington would be capable of understanding why the Catholic Church cannot share that. And if one can answer questions like that for, to an honest person, he'll see that that's where the truth lies. And rather than be re- repulsed by it as he was before because of his lack of understanding, then he finds it all the more attractive because he finds, well, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. I just didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'd like to believe that he did convert. They say George Washington can never tell a lie, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, well, we'll hope. That's right. We'll hope he, he, abhorred, he abhorred the liar. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's move on, though, Father. There's... Yeah. Uh, there's a question here from a viewer who asks about her elderly mother, who's in a uh, who's in a, a an assisted living assisted living home. Mm-hmm. Um, she says that her mother, um, for her whole life, was always a good Catholic, uh, observed the faith and, and all of the uh, all of all of the laws of the the, the the church concerning eating meat on Fridays and uh, wearing the scapular, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that she's in this home, she's 95 years old. She has dementia. And uh, this viewer notices that sometimes her mother does not have her scapular on. She's concerned that uh, she eats meat on Fridays now because the the uh, nutrition in the assisted living home they feed they have they have meat uh, they have meat for for their Friday meals. And so she asks, how much is she responsible for when her mind isn't all there anymore? Will she be judged when she isn't in her right mind having dementia? Well, one can only be responsible for what he uh, knows and wills, okay? We say that to be um, guilty of a mortal sin in terms of the actual guilt, not, not, the, not the objective crime committed, but the guilt that comes into the soul because of the will consenting to that crime. And we say in the Catechism that the the matter must be grave matter, a serious matter, and a person must be cognizant of the fact that this is a serious matter, and a person must then give full consent. I never cared for that uh, threefold uh, condition because uh, even if one mistakenly thought uh, something that he was 
tempted to do was seriously wrong, mm-hmm. even if it weren't, mm-hmm. even if it was not seriously wrong, but he thought it was, and he consented to it anyway as seriously wrong, mortally sinful, he would be guilty of the mortal right. sin. Okay, so I think the objective nature of the act is important, certainly, but even if one's knowledge um, is erroneous about it and he conceives it to be mortally sinful when it is not in itself, he still can has to then decide whether to consent to, sure. to that serious, what he considers a serious evil or not. Now, as far as a patient with dementia, of course, they're impaired in their cognitive and their volitional powers to know and to will. You know, obviously, there's, there's an impairment there. And it's clinically diagnosed. I mean, it's, it's not just a matter of speculation. They, they are understood to be where they are, in this condition they are because of this problem. And so we have to say that automatically their, their power of willing is diminished, right? And insofar as they can't give full consent, um, we would have to say that, no, they would not be responsible the, for committing a mortal sin, even if it's something that they necessarily knew was a mortal sin. But here, here you have a problem, you know, when, when somebody goes into that condition of dementia, it's a regressive condition, obviously, and uh, you know, have to draw the line. When, when do they uh, become incapable of uh, willing, you know, to the point of, of committing more sin? Well, that's something we, we, can't, we can't tell. Right. All we know is this individual is in a, in a uh, situation that she can't control. She has no control over what they serve her, Right, and um, she can't. I don't know if she can get out to mass um, um, on Sundays and holidays. Obligations. So, what obligation does she really have anymore? I, th- I would say to this dear lady, uh, listen, um, you should not really be concerned about her eating meat on Fridays because <coughs> it might be necessary for her to maintain her health. Mm-hmm. And even in cases uh, when someone doesn't have dementia, the church has acknowledged that there can be reasons for dispensations, mm-hmm. good reasons for dispensations, even from the Friday abstinence and from the Lenten abstinence. So uh, that she should not be concerned about that. In fact, at, at, I imagine her mother's an advanced age, and so she needs to eat what she can mm-hmm. just to maintain whatever strength she has left. And uh, there's no sin involved whatsoever okay. in that. Mm-hmm. One might ask, well, if, if they're foisting this upon someone against their will, knowing that they didn't want this, would the uh, person who's feeding you know, the, her mother be responsible before God? Well, again, I mean, this is something we can't really know, what they know mm-hmm. and what they understand. All these people know is they're bringing a tray of food to a lady according to the menu they have in the establishment there and this is what they say she needs to maintain her strength so I mean, we can really you know yeah. go kind of in depth and get lost in the question yeah. but uh, I would say based upon what she wrote here if her mother's in a facility now because of dementia that has progressed so far that it would be very hard at least for me to see that she would have the power of willing to the point of, of com- committing mortal sin 
the power of understanding necessary to commit mortal sin. So I would doubt mm-hmm. seriously that she's even capable of it. Mm-hmm. And Father, I think there's there's a uh, there's a quote from there's a line from the Imitation of Christ that would yeah. apply here, where he says uh, that man weighs the action and God weighs the intention. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's an important thing to take into consideration there. But Father, I think we have time for one more question. So there's a viewer who asks if you could provide clarification on the relationship between consent and the absence of consummation and still constituting a true marriage. So there is consent, mm-hmm. is this the scenario she's giving. They mm-hmm. consented to be married, to be husband and wife. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they did not consummate the marriage. Right. For whatever reason. She right. didn't say whatever reason, right? Right. Um, well, the church has said that there that no power on earth, or anywhere else for that matter, can annul a marriage that has been ratified and consummated. Ratified being mm-hmm. the consent has been duly expressed to be married, right? The intention to be married and duly expressed, meeting the requirements, the formalities of the church, the two witnesses, at least, and the priest present, right? Um, so the vows have been exchanged, and uh, they are married by those vows, and then they have a right to uh, consummate their marriage, and they don't. <clears throat> if they did consummate their marriage, no one could annul that marriage. If they did not consummate their marriage, the church recognizes that there is a power within the church to grant an annulment of the consent in the absence of consummation. And, um, but of course, that is something that only the, you know, the, the supreme authority of the church, the magisterial authority of the church could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church would need the jurisdiction uh, yeah. to, to grant that. But there, yeah, if the question is, is there a difference in the possibility or the, the, the ability to annul a marriage that is ratified, meaning the vows have been exchanged duly, right? but not consummated, as opposed to a marriage where the vows are exchanged as they should be, but then the marriage is consummated. Yes, there is a, a, a difference there in that the, the primary, the, the former, without the consummation, can be, under a very de- definite set of circumstances, annulled mm-hmm. by the supreme authority of the church. Mm-hmm. But that would still be considered a, a true marriage, even if it hadn't been consummated yet? Would, would there be? Is there not some kind of um, a special term for that, that it's, uh, that it's um, been, um, what's, it, what's, what's the word, not, not yet consummated, um, ratified, there's, there's but, marriage, ratified, but not consummated? Married ratum non consummatum. That. That. Ratified okay. but not consummated. Okay. Okay. Right. Perfect. Hmm. But there's a, there's a similar um, question, and uh, I believe this applies here, where someone recently asked hmm. if it would be uh, permissible for a Catholic to serve as a bridesmaid or a maid of honor or something in in a non-Catholic wedding between two members who are non-Catholic. Would that be would that be permissible for a Catholic to do? If it would be a valid marriage, mm-hmm. that a Catholic could. As long as they did not, <clears throat> again, as long as they were not taking part in the religious ceremony as right. a form of worship. Okay. Um, that's difficult to do, but it can be done. It depends on what, so for example, if two Lutherans are getting married, but they were, they've been raised in the Lutheran church, neither is baptized Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church actually teaches that if they're both validly baptized, even as Lutherans, but their baptisms are valid, then uh, they if they were married at all, it would be a sacramental marriage, too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, someone who would be asked to participate in, in a wedding, let's say between two Protestants, you know. Um, and Protestants can validly marry before their ministers. They can also validly marry before justice of the peace. Mm -hmm. They're not obliged by church law because the church herself has exempted them from that law. Mm -hmm. um, that's her right to do so. Um, they're uh, exempted them from the, for the requirements of the law with regard to marriage. We could, perhaps we should say that. Um, so they're not obliged to have a priest okay. present, Catholic priest present. But um, nonetheless, um, it would be difficult for a Catholic person to participate in that without having some sort of religious ceremony, I would think, you know, okay. unless they went to a justice of the peace. Okay for a wedding. But in any case, if a Catholic were asked to participate in a wedding of the, no, well, this goes for any Protestant wedding, Nova Soto wedding, any, any wedding these days, um, they would need to investigate whether or not it's going to be a valid marriage at all. That's uh, what I was going to ask. They can't participate how, in that in any way. How much, uh, how, how much uh, responsibility or obligation does the witness of the marriage have to to uh, examine this marriage and determine if it's a valid marriage. How much resp well, responsibility Well, if one have? is a witness, that means that they'd be the best man or maid of honor. Usually right. we designate them as the witnesses. To be a bridesmaid or a mm -hmm. groomsman wouldn't necessarily make them the witnesses. Mm -hmm. But their obligation would be there because they cannot be supporting an invalid marriage, which would amount to, well, Let's say one member of the couple had been married before and was still validly married, you know, and there was already a valid, let's say you got a divorce and they want to remarry and they want you to be in the wedding. You'd have to find out, and you can't just assume there's no problem. Yeah. <clears throat> you have to find out that if it's uh, a friend of yours uh, uh, who's not a traditional Catholic and he's getting married, you know, you know downtown, whatever, uh, <laughs> that um, the, that he's never been married before, and that the the girl he's marrying has never been married before, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that they're both free to marry. That's one thing. They have to have some kind of understanding that they have the understanding of what marriage is, and that they intend to be validly married to each other, and don't have the idea that they're going to just try it out for a while and see how it works. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Obviously, if, if they're already uh, cohabitating, that would <clears throat> put a burden on you to, well, you've already been doing this and now you want to just, as a formality, pronounce your marriage vows and this is making a mockery of the marriage vows, so I can't join you in that mockery of the marriage vows. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of uh, <clears throat> issues one has to clear. They, one should go to their uh, traditional priest and ask him to um, examine the circumstances. The, the, the person should do the research, bring the information, and ask the parish priest, what do I need to do to even, you know, ethically and morally do this that mm -hmm. would not violate my faith? Okay, so in short, if a traditional Catholic <clears throat> is asked to to be a witness at a marriage, they must... Or even just take part as a groomsman or a bridesmaid. Right, but the uh, the witnesses in, in particular would have an obligation to examine that, that, that marriage and oh, see if it, if it would be valid. Then also they would have to ensure that they would in no way be partaking of any non-Catholic ceremony, mm -hmm. right? Right. Okay. For example, you might have a Catholic friend, a non-Catholic friend, who wants to marry a girl he knows, and uh, you find out that she was a baptized Catholic, mm -hmm. and they want to get married before Justice of the Peace. You couldn't do that. Right. right. So, um, yeah, you, you have an obligation. 
is there going to be an obligation for anyone who would participate in the wedding in any capacity, but especially serious obligation for the witnesses. Yeah. And then <clears throat> the next question is, well, okay, I can't go to the wedding, but can I go to the reception? No. Say, if it's a valid wedding, you cannot celebrate. If it's invalid marriage, if it's an invalid marriage, you can't celebrate it. <laughs> you know, if they were they're already married to somebody else, they might get married to a, a second husband or second wife. Uh, they would be celebrating adultery. If they're not validly married, even though they have no attachments by marriage or anything else, they're going to be uh, you're going to be celebrating fornication. Mm -hmm. So you just cannot do that without being guilty of grave scandal. What exactly qualifies as celebrating, though? I mean, obviously, the uh, the um, the reception afterwards would would, would qualify as that. But what about um, uh, uh, going over to their house for dinner or, or having parties with them, something like that? What exactly qualifies to the extent, as celebrating? To the extent that you would be reasonably showing that you accept the fact that they're married, or that it doesn't matter whether they're married, no, mm -hmm. you'd be giving scandal. Okay. So if they, let's say your son, who's invalidly married to some young woman, rather, comes to the house, you can't have them stay there together. Right. You can't have them share rooms together. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you'd be basically consenting to adultery. Mm -hmm. You'd be telling them, look, I don't, even if you told them, I don't think you're invalidly married, and I condemn that, it's wrong, 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 but feel free to use the, you know, the, the guest room. Mm -hmm. Um, it'd be a terrible scandal involved in that, and you'd be helping people to go to hell. You're helping your loved ones to lose their souls. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. You have to stand very firmly against it. What about giving gifts? <clears throat> Could you, okay, I'm not going to the wedding, okay, I'm not going to the reception, but that's going to cause a lot of problems with my family, <laughs> so I better send them a nice gift. Well, wait a minute. Still, still They're still... <laughs> You're still rewarding them for something that is very, very offensive to Almighty God. You can't mm -hmm. do that. Um, what about uh, when they have a child and the child is born? Uh, can you send a gift for the child? You tell me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were right. Well, God has given life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And God created a soul, and He did. Can you rejoice that God has given life? Sure. What do you lament? You lament the circumstances mm -hmm. that we have imposed on God, right? So you could send a gift to the child because, let's face it, I mean, uh, as the parent of this man or woman who brought this adulterous union into the family, you lament what they've done and you oppose it steadfastly, but loving, charitably, lovingly, you know, you don't hate over it, you don't want to attack anyone. But you're very firm because your primary love is the love for God. And ultimately, that's your entire love for God. And you have to be faithful to that. And you want that to be always be, that's the point. Not that you're just offended by what they've done, but that your love for God is there. And your love for them in wanting them to save their souls. Mm -hmm. That's what it always has to come down to. All the time. Right? Not just that you're mad mm -hmm. because they did something that you don't like. No, that's not the issue here. But uh, although, frankly, it necessarily is part of the issue because usually those who are doing these bad things are angry with everybody else because they're not going along with them. And so it's all everybody else's fault that they're doing this. But they're the fact, fact the aggressors who are doing it to everybody else in the family. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have no right to be angry. They should be apologetic. They should be apologizing to everybody else in the family. 
But in any case, um, but that's not the kind of people they are. If they were, they wouldn't be doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, even if one were to send a gift to a child born out of wedlock to an invalid marriage like that, because it is their grandchild. Mm -hmm. This is their grandchild. Yeah. They can't deny that. Um, but they would want to make it clear, you know, and I don't think the fact that I'm sending this this gift to your child, my grandchild, is a matter of saying, oh, well, you know, all is well, because yeah. after all, you had this baby, you know, mm -hmm. and I want access to the baby. But uh, because this is my grandchild, I recognize this as my grandchild. I love this child as my grandchild. And, um, and I always will, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I rejoice that God has given this life. I thank God for giving life, but I, I repent. And I will do penance for you for the circumstances under which you required God to bring this child into the world. That it's not fair to God, it's not fair to this child mm -hmm. either. <clears throat> so, um, one has to make that distinction. Right. Would it be permissible for a, uh, for, to, to go on like a couple's date, a couple's dinner night or something with, with an invalidly married couple? Would that be considered approving of their marriage? Invalid marriage? To do one now? To go on like a, a couple's date. <laughs> what does that mean? Like two couples go out. So there's a traditional Catholic couple who is validly married and everything, and they're asked by an invalidly married couple to go out on a date with them, to go on a couple's couple's night out, go to dinner, say. Would that be considered celebrating their marriage and that? Well, again, if the truly validly married traditional Catholic couple would be sending the message that would be a reasonable understanding, right, that mm -hmm. they accept that these two people are married, which is a lie, or that they realize they're not married, but it doesn't matter. If that's the message they're sending, yes, it would be scandalous. Okay. It would be absolutely wrong for them to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, if, if the invalidly married couple wanted to be with a traditional Catholic couple to talk about the situation they're in, to try to remedy it, that would be a good thing. But I think the traditional Catholic couple would have to, uh, um, would have to make it very clear it's somewhere, somewhere along the line, I mean, earlier rather than later, to the invalidly married couple, well, you know, um, uh, you know, we love you, we're concerned about you, and we want you to uh, be validly married, but we don't, we don't see that you are, we can't. Mm -hmm. We'd be happy to explain why. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, please realize that, you know, we're not going out just to say that you're, you know, you being Catholic and you being Lutheran, you going and getting married before just the peace is equivalent to, you know, are being married. I mean, you don't want to make it that way. Like, we're more married than you are, <laughs> obviously. But the point is, you don't want to say that it's the same thing. It's mm -hmm. all the same. That's what you have to avoid saying. And uh, I guess I would ask this question. The, the, the um, invalidly married couple, do they know, have they been informed that the couple of traditional Catholics who are validly married, that they do not acknowledge the validity of their wedding, their marriage? Do they know that or don't they? Are they just looking at it as a couple's night out together, two validly married couples having dinner together? Or have they been informed that this traditional Catholic couple does not accept the validity of their marriage? Mm -hmm. 
Well, again, I think it's incumbent upon them if they care about these people and care about their souls to tell them, you know. Um, in as kind, gentle a way possible, at the same time, in as clear a way possible, is that they, they simply can't accept that as a valid marriage. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the couple, the dating couple that is not validly married, would have to say, well, yes, we are validly married and uh, there is no argument, or uh, why would you not accept this as a valid marriage? What are your reasons for it? What are you thinking here? Um, or uh, they might be thinking, well, what difference does it make anyway? Yeah. You know, if they were living together for a couple of years before they got married, figured, well, you know, it just changed the legal status, not the moral status of their union. You know? mm -hmm. So I think, the, again, before accepting such an invitation, a traditional Catholic couple has to do diligence there, and they have to find out what is going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we, if we do get together with these people, we've got to make sure that neither they nor anybody else reads into that uh, what would be scandalous, and that is that we accept the situation as perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's a... Uh that's a great discussion, Father. Sorry, we, we kind of <laughs> went off on a tangent. Well, there, it's but, the uh, beginning of a lot of other discussions. Sure, sure yeah, yeah, definitely. But thanks for uh, thanks for playing along. Thanks for being here tonight. Oh, sure. It. Thank yeah, you. No problem. Bless you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.